Children, it was great to have you guys this morning. Enjoy your class. Be nice to your teachers. As always, teachers, be nice to your students. Yeah. All right. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, if you would, and find your way to Judges chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to grab one of the black Bibles in front of you, and you can find Judges 13 on page 199. I do want to just give you a quick word as uh, before we get into the word. Um, we have been talking about that we were going to introduce our elder candidates today, um, but we as a team, a leadership team, have unanimously uh, decided that what we want to do is we want to defer, we want to wait until the spring, we have some additional training we want to do, and we just kind of all felt like, you know, there's been things in the news that there was a date certain, and because of that date certain, they went ahead and moved on it, and it didn't work out so well, so we decided that we want to be just gracious in that and, and just listen to the leading of the Lord, and so that's, we're going to hold off on that. So we'll continue, we're going to actually continue to work as a team as we have been, and uh, God will continue to work through that team as he has been. All right, Judges chapter 13. Now, if you were to ask most Christians, or if I were to ask you to tell me something about some of the minor, minor judges like Othniel or Ehud or Tola or Jair or Ibzan or Elon or Abdon, you probably kind of not want to make eye contact with me. You know, kinda, you know when in school when the teacher would ask a question and it's like, man, it, I'm just going to look down because I know he's not going to see me. But if I were to ask you to give me some information on one of the major judges, be it Gideon or Samson, you'd probably be able to tell me a couple things, right? Gideon, fairly well-known. Samson is actually the most well-known of all of the judges. And so what we're actually going to do today is we're going to fast forward from last week, chapter 9 to chapter 13. We're going to kind of fly over the, uh, uh, the minor judges and we're going to start with today, the life of Samson. It's about the 11th century B.C., about 100 years after the nation of Israel had, under the leadership of Joshua, gone in and settled the land. About 50 years prior to Saul becoming the first king, Samson lived in a time where Israel had effectively assimilated into the pagan world around them. That's why you see judges say there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own mind. It was a horrific time for the nation and it was a time in which God shows up. In fact, so often, it is in the time of deep darkness that God shows up. In fact, my title, or my big idea is this today. In times of deep darkness, God's light shines brightest. If you've been in a dark time, you know what that's like, how God can break through and his light shines brightly. I remember when we, we bought this building and there was a wall back where those metal columns were. And, and you could walk into this and there were, there were no lights. You actually had to go up to that little room up there to turn on the lights, and it was pitch black in here. I mean, there was no way to get any light in here at all. And uh, you'd have to come in, and you walk in, and it was dark. And if you light up your phone, we all have, most of us have flashlights on our phones. And if you don't, well, you're probably not in our century yet. 
But, but what happens is all of a sudden that light, it, it's like bright. You see the stairs. You can walk around. But if you were to turn on the light right now, it really wouldn't seem like it means a whole lot. But it is when things are dark that God's light shines brightest. Now, as we study the life of, of Samson, and there's four chapters devoted to Samson, you're going to find out that he starts out really well. But it's not how you start that matters. It's how you what? Finish. The key is not how you start. We can start out strong, but the key is finishing. And I think for, for Christians, it's a great reminder that we don't just start out strong, get all fired up, but, but, but faith is an obedience, in the, in a long obedience in the same direction. Samson's life started with great promise. And we're going to see that promise and, and why it started so well in chapter 13. And let me just give you one reason. God. You see God's hand on the birth of Samson. He had a promising start. So what do we learn about God from this passage? First of all, we learn that God knows your needs. God knows your needs. Look at verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Anybody ever heard that before? It's like over and over and over again. You've got this pattern, this, this, this downward spiral where man sins and then God judges. And then man cries out. He repents and then God restores. And this is the seventh time that we see that, that the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's like at some point, get a clue pill. At some point, you got to know it's not going to go well for you. They did evil. And they were given over to the Philistines for 40 years. In fact, that is the longest time of oppression that we see in the book of Judges. The last longest we saw was 20 years. But in this oppression, there is an eerie quietness. There's something that we actually don't see now in verses 1 and following. They were oppressed, and generally after they were oppressed, what did they do? They cried out to God, but here we see there's no crying out to God. There's no recognition of how desperate everything was in their life. They've settled in. They've assimilated. Listen, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to be salt and light in the world. The Israelites have just kind of become part of the culture. No different. In fact, the oppression, it just got to a point where just like, this feels normal. They become worldly. In fact, there's been a lot written on worldliness. You can read 1 John chapter 2, I think 15 and following, that talks about worldliness. But I want to give you a definition by David Wells. I had read this a couple weeks ago, and I thought it was a great definition of worldliness. This is from his book, Losing Our Virtue. I haven't read the book yet, but this is something that, that uh, uh, was quoted. Worldliness, that system of values in any given age, which has, its, has it at its center our fallen human perspective. So at the center of worldliness is not God's perspective, 
but it's our perspective. And that's a danger, which displaces God and his truth from the world, and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and, for that reason, makes what is wrong seem normal. I think that's a great definition. It's a challenging definition because we are so inundated with the things of the world, with the ways of the world, with the culture. I mean, it's, it's hitting us from every single direction that it's easy just to think that's normal. That's not normal. That's not the way the world was created. That's a fallen, sinful world. And we, as believers in Jesus Christ, have been redeemed from that. We're no longer to live like the world. We're to be salt and light in the world. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. But here's the problem with the nation of Israel. They were comfortable both in the world and of the world. It became who they were. They didn't cry out. This is one of the lowest points in the history of the nation, a time of deep, deep darkness. It was a time where God's light was going to shine brightest. And so God gives them over to the Philistines. Now, who are the Philistines? Well, the Philistines, where they were known as the sea people, they had, they had migrated from, from Egypt, from, I mean, it's not Egypt, from Greece, and they had come over and they, they had settled kind of on the plain, coastal plain of Canaan. This was, this was about 100 years after Israel had, had entered the land. What made them especially dangerous was they were experts at smelting. How many of you are good smelters? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, maybe one in here can smelt. But they, they, they could make iron tools and iron weapons. In fact, they would not allow the Israelites to make weapons, which was a very... Difficult thing for the Israelites because then they couldn't make swords. And if they need a certain tool, they would get gouged. Sometimes figuratively, sometimes physically. The Israelites traded and they intermarried with the Philistines. The Philistines became a thorn causing those that lived in the area where the Philistines settled to move. In fact, let me show you a map right now. I thought it would be fun to pull out a map. I can put out, so right here. This is, let me put it up here. This is Dan. And the Philistines settled into this area right on the, on the coast. And so we find out that Samson is from the region of Dan. And because of the Philistines, most of the people from Dan, instead of saying, like, we're going to fight for our land, they, they migrated north. And a few families stayed down in Dan. And that's where we see Samson's family from. Now, there was an apathetic response by Israel when the Philistines encroached into their land. And we're going to see that the Jews, the, the Israelites, hoard after other gods. And so God gave Israel into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And they didn't cry out. But here's, what we, here's one thing we need to understand about God. God knows what we need. He knows what we need many times before we know what we need. One thing he knew that they needed is they needed deliverance. As unredeemed mankind prior to Christ, we all needed something desperately. We needed to be redeemed from our sin. So first of all, we see that God knows what you need. But secondly, we see that God provides grace. God provides grace. Now, 
Was there anything that Israel had done to deserve God's grace? No. Was there anything that Israel had done to deserve God's mercy? No. What is grace? Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Mercy is, rece- is not receiving what we do deserve. What do we deserve? Well, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 is very clear. The wages of sin is death. What we earn from our sin is death. But mercy says, I'm not giving you death. Grace is, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. And so here you have the, the, the Israelites living in, I mean, just desperate sin. They've assimilated into the world, and God breaks through. Look at verse 2. There was a man, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, the tribe of Dan, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children. Now, Zorah. Zorah is a town about 14 miles west of Jerusalem. It was up on this this ridge. It's where the tribe of Dan was from. And you have one of these remnant families from Dan that didn't migrate north that stayed there. And the family was the family of Manoah, and he has a wife. What's interesting is she's never named. She was, she was like Mrs. Manoah. We know that she's going to be Samson's mom. She's Manoah's wife, but she doesn't have a name. And we find out that she's in a desperate situation. She's barren. She can't have children. During this time... Children were extremely important because you were either an agrarian uh, community, you're pretty much an agrarian community, meaning you want many hands to help you out in the fields or many hands to help you with the sheep or the goats. And so she's in a desperate situation. And notice, it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children. Now, this woman's plight was very similar to some other women in the Bible. And I think, once again, this is God's grace. Some of you have struggled having children. We have, we have a child in our family, a, a, a son and a daughter-in-law, and it's, uh, they haven't had children yet. Something we're praying for. It's a, it can be a very painful thing, but God's grace is some of the godliest women in the Bible didn't have children, or at least we're, we're, we're barren before God showed up. Sarah, the Bible says she was good as dead. She was in her 90s when she, when, she had a bi, uh, when she had a baby. Rebecca was barren. Rachel was barren. Hannah in 1 Samuel, we're gonna, we're, uh, if you go to 1 Samuel, don't need to go there now, but you see how Hannah prays to the Lord for a child. And then Elizabeth, the, the mother of John the Baptist, was barren. And you see God's special compassion towards these women. In fact, in this time, it was thought that if you were barren, you were under God's curse. Yet, it, yet in these times, in these times of deep darkness, that's where God's light shines the brightest. And so it says that the angel of the Lord appeared. Now, the angel of the Lord, that terminology is used 11 different times in chapter 13. It's a greater concentration of, of the name of the Lord in, in this chapter than anywhere else in the Bible. God is showing up. 
in the midst of deep darkness, both, both national darkness and personal darkness, God is showing up. And I just got to step back and say, for some of you that are going through difficult times, through dark times, know that this is when God's light shines the brightest. At first we think this is a prophet based on the prophecies he makes. But as we will see, this is the pre-incarnate Christ. This, this is a Christophany, an appearing of Christ. God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to make this prophecy. And it is all grace that the Lord would come to an unnamed woman in a desperate situation. It is all grace that God would come to us in our desperation. He would send his son to die on the cross in our place to be raised on the third day so that we could turn from our sin and turn to him by, by faith and have eternal life. It is all grace. God provides you grace because he knows what you need. So he says, behold, you are barren and are not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Does that sound familiar? That sounds like a nativity story. Well, that's what this is. This is the nativity of Samson. And it causes us to look for a greater Samson, look toward a greater Samson. And notice, when you look at the birth of Samson, there are no illusions about what caused this. It was God. It was purely a work of God, lest anyone should boast. The Lord comes to an unnamed woman in a desperate situation and provides grace. Notice what it says. But you shall, bear, you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold... You shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, there is a lot here to unpack. But what, first of all, what is a Nazarite? Don't go there now, but maybe if you're taking notes, remind yourself to go back to Numbers chapter 6. Because that's where you see and understand what it means to take a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite... Was some, what Nazarite means, it means to be consecrated or separated. It was someone that was separated to the Lord or consecrated to the Lord. In fact, the Nazarites were of the lay people, the most holy of people. They were, they were desiring to live for God in a way that was just different from the rest of the nation. God was separating out this child. While he was still in his mother's womb, you see that word over and over again, from the womb. And it's a reminder of Psalm 139 that, that, that he, he knew us while we were still in our mother's womb. He, he knit us together. If, if you ever wanted another passage for, for why we, we believe that, that life begins at conception, because God creates life in the womb, he knew who this child was going to be. A couple other People in the Bible who we know were Nazarites, Samuel was a Nazarite. John the Baptist was a Nazarite, dedicated to the Lord. So people took Nazarite vows for a specific 
period of time. But here we find that this one, this child is going to be a Nazarite for life. And there's three requirements for a Nazarite, for Nazarite vows based on uh, Numbers chapter 6. The first one is no grapes and no grape byproducts, meaning no wine, no strong drink, no Welch's grape juice, no grape jelly, no grapes. The second one was no dead bodies. Probably a little bit easier. Uh, you, 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 you couldn't touch dead bodies if, you're, you know, if, if, you know, if, if, if your little poodle passes away, you can't touch it. If a, a spouse or a child dies, you can't touch it. You can't touch dead bodies. And the third is no razor or no haircuts. For some of us, that's not a big deal. But for others, it could be a really big deal. In fact, you see over and over again, he says, you know, there's, you shall be careful and drink. No. So he's telling Mrs. Manoah, you, you should not drink. You shall eat nothing unclean. No razor shall come upon his head. For this child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. So this is a special child. He's being, he's being separated out from all other children of the world. God knows what you need. And he provides you grace. Notice what it says in verse 5. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. You see the mission for his life. God has given him a mission. He shall be. He, I mean, he shall save, begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, Samson is taught many times as one of the great heroes of the Bible. But we have to be careful that when we study the heroes of the Bible, we don't miss the one true hero in the Bible. In fact, Ralph Davis, great commentator on the book of Judges, he says this. I love this. He says, we must not allow our focus on the Savior God raises up to eclipse the God who saves. I love that statement. We must not allow our focus on the Savior God raises up to eclipse the God who saves. The reality is there's a danger when reading Scripture we can be so enthralled with like a David or like a Peter or, or many others, or a Moses, that we miss the God who's empowered them. In fact is, when you study Samson, you've got to be careful about not being so focused on what Samson does, and he does a lot, we'll see that over these next couple weeks, that you miss seeing what God is doing in the background. In fact, we were talking about this in our men's Bible study break, table group breakout on, on Friday, that sometimes we can read the Bible, and I, I did this probably for the first 10 years, that like I'm reading the Bible to see, like, what do I need to do? How should I live? What, what, what should I do? It's like this do mentality versus, like, God is awesome. Reading, reading the Bible to understand who God is and what he's done and let that truth permeate into my life. And I got to tell you, there's times I still struggle with that. It's like, what do I need to do? But if we become so overwhelmed with the goodness and the holiness and the grace of God, that changes us from the inside out. You don't want to miss the God of the Bible who's doing a great work in and through all that are in the Bible. So first of all, we know that God knows your needs. Secondly, God provides you grace. Third, we learn God hears your prayers. 
God hears your prayers. Look at verse 6. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I mean, I've marked that in my Bible. It's like very awesome. So good. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said, and obviously they're not from Indiana, because when you're from Indiana, you ask everybody where they're from and who's their pappy. That's where we get who's your, who's your pappy, who's your dad, who's your, where are you from. But, but he, says, he says, I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death, a lifelong vow. Now, when I read this, one of the things I see that just popped off the pages to me right away was, this is a foundation for a great marriage right here, what we just read in these verses. Because this man comes to Mrs. Manoah, tells her about who she is, what is going on in her life, and she immediately goes and tells her husband. I think that's really cool. But let me tell you what's really amazing. He listened. That to me is a He listened. Like some dude came to me, told me that I was barren, told me that I was going to have a child. And he doesn't blow her off. There's a foundation for a great marriage right there, right? Women, ladies, it, it is. That's what we see. In fact, not only does he listen to her, But Manoah now cries out to the Lord for wisdom on how to raise this child. Look at verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. The greatest thing a man can do is pray for his family. Pray for his wife. Pray for his children. Pray for his unsaved children. Pray for his prodigals. Shows dependence upon God. He wants God to show him how to navigate these most important relationships. It's like he's saying, God, I can't do this. I don't know what to do here. I need you. Lead me. Men, I got to believe that's very attractive to a godly woman. So Manoah prays. And God listens, verse 9, and God listened to the voice of Manoah. You ever wondered if God listens to your voice? Manoah prayed, God listened. Manoah prayed, God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. Now, she's sitting in the field. We don't know what timing is on this, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. He continues to come to the woman. You know, one of the things you see in the Bible is the elevation of women. I mean, just, you, you, you see it at the cross. You see it at the tomb. You see it here. Verse 10. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? Just give us her name. Like, tell us who she is. It's like, this woman. I'm telling you, like, in 2021, guys, that's probably not the way to refer to your wife. 
this woman you gave to me. I mean, that goes back to Genesis chapter 3, right? And Noah rose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? I, I love, can you see the faith there? When your words come true, that is trusting in the promises of God. That is trusting in, in the prophecies of God. When your words come true... What is the child's manner of life and what is his mission? I want to know what you want for my child, Lord. Verse 13, and the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. It's like, I told her, she told you, I'm telling you again, but you probably should have just listened to her the first time. So she may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. This is a father and a mother wanting to understand God's plan for their child. Why? So they can fulfill their responsibilities to bring that child up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Their responsibility was to raise him up as a Nazarite. But I, saw, I thought about, what about parents today? And so I, I wrote this down. Some important roles of parents. Important roles of parents. And I just wrote down three things. First of all, model Christ-likeness. Model Christ-likeness. The greatest thing we can do for our children is model what God has called us to be. God has saved us. We're new creations. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We need to live out our Position. We need to practice our position in Christ. We need to model that in our home with our words, with our actions, with our unconditional love. Model Christ likeness in your home. Second, teach God's truths. Your children are getting so many different messages. Teach God's truths. Teach God's truth. We do that in our children's ministry. We do it in our student ministry. We do it in all of our ministries here. But the fact is, as, as a church, we're just coming alongside you and helping you and affirming what you should already be teaching your children. Start with children's Bibles. If you have, like, we have a lot of women that are pregnant right now. What a blessing. And the fact is, you, you should have a, there's, there's the storybook children's Bible, which is by um, Martin Lloyd-Jones's uh, uh, daughter. But it's, a, it's great to have where you can literally sit around and just take time, 15, 20 minutes, half an hour, just open up this little children's Bible and read it to them. Start telling them the stories of God's truth. As they get a little bit older, have family devotions. And if you're like us, you're going to do it imperfectly. You're going to mess up. I, I remember when we first started doing it, man, I did not know what to do. And it was like, ultimately, I took a, a study Bible. I'd read, the, I'd read the passage, look at the study notes down below, and then we'd talk about it. I mean, I just muddled through it. I had no clue what I was doing. But God can redeem that. God can use that. Individual discipleship. Look for teachable moments. T teach them God's truth. Take God's word. Open God's word. Let it be 
Let it, let it just permeate your whole family. Model Christ-likeness. Teach God's truth. Third, show gospel-centric love. Show gospel-centric love, meaning when you mess up and you will, ask for forgiveness. Because when you ask for forgiveness of your children, you are teaching them that you're not perfect, that you need a Savior, and they're not perfect, and they're going to need a Savior. Show them grace. Teach it to them. Teach mercy. Teach grace. Teach forgiveness. Teach unconditional love. The great danger today is we want to raise a moralist, external conformist, but get to the heart. Show gospel-centric love. What's amazing here, we see God hears your prayer. Manoah prayed, God listened to his voice. Think about this. The God of the universe, he stoops down and he listens. He hears us. Now, there are two things that keep God from hearing your prayers. Two. One, sin. Sin. In fact, look at Psalm 66, 18. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. In other words, if we sin and we don't confess that sin, you can pray all you want, but it's not getting above this ceiling. Sin keeps God from hearing our prayers. In fact, you see that in, 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 second, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse uh, 7. Where we're to husbands are to dwell with their wives with understanding, uh, treating them as the weaker vessel, lest, the, lest the, the Lord not hear our prayers. So the first way the Lord won't hear our prayers is if we have sin, unconfessed sin. But the second is if we don't pray. There's nothing to hear if you're not praying. Prayers is speaking to God. In fact, I, I, I love what, what James Chapter 4, verse 2 says, it says, you have not because you what? You ask not. God loves when we talk to him. He loves when we cry out to him. The Bible says in Psalm 27, 8, he says, you have said, seek my face. So your face, O Lord, do I seek. Get into the presence of God. Spend time with him. Prayer is awesome because we get to talk to our Savior and Lord. So not only does God hear your prayers, but fourth, God desires your worship. God desires your worship. Now listen, when you encounter the presence of God, you're changed from the inside out. Manoah, not really know what's going on right now, is like a good Jewish man and he says, let's eat. We got to have food right now. And I can say that because that's my nature. Yeah, so, so what happens is, 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 is he's like a typical, is, I mean, this is it, typical Israelite hospitality. Look at verse 15. Verse 15. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please, let us detain you and prepare you a young, a young goat for you. How about some goat? Anybody up for some goat? Now, this is a sacrifice right here. I mean, this is not like 2021 where you open up your freezer and you pull out, you know, Trader Joe's Kung Pao chicken. 
and like put it on the pan for about 10 minutes and you're, you got lunch. Like you got to go get the goat and, and, and you got you to gotta, you gotta kill the goat and then you got to dress the goat and then you got to quarter the goat and then you got to cook the goat. And what's interesting here is this is not what he desired. Now, the sharing of a meal in the ancient world was an act of fellowship. David even used a verse earlier just talking about the body. And I think that fellowship is one of those key areas that we've got to continue to fight for and work for as a church. In fact, look at Acts chapter 242. We see in the early church, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. That's, that can speak of communion, but it also speaks of just spending time together, fellowship, and the prayers. And then notice this in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I think one of the greatest things we can do as a church here is spend time in fellowship. That's one of the reasons we have donuts. Listen, we don't have donuts just so you can get sugared up and go home. We have donuts because you're going to meet some people. And we have good coffee because we want you to, to hang out. And I would even encourage you, meet somebody you don't know. Go to lunch with them after church. What a blessing. Meet somebody, you, you know, just spend some time with somebody you don't know. So Manoah offers a goat, but the angel of the Lord says, no goat, worship. We want to worship. Look at verse 16. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come true, faith, we may honor you. It's like, what is your name? Like, when these words come true, I want to be able to honor you. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So when, these, these, uh, when that uh, comes true, uh, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Seen that word before, speaking of Jesus? Wonderful counselor, mighty God. You see it even in, um, you see it in Psalm 139. Where it says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's the same word. Here what you see is, is he says, why do you want to my, know my name since it is wonderful? He could have just as easily said, it is the alpha and omega. It is the beginning of the end. He, he says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the bread of life. He could have said, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. He could have said, I am the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am Jesus. But he says, my name is what? It's wonderful. And everything about a name represented who that person was. It is wonderful. And then comes the offering. Look at verse 19. Verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, on the one who works wonders. Almost the same word as wonderful. 
And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Okay, you see that? You think, you go, awesome. I mean, what should be the reaction when you see something like that? Let's keep reading. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. Hard stop. Like, boom. On the ground. When you come into the presence of the Lord, you can do nothing but fall on your face and worship. I mean, you see, read Ezekiel chapter 1. I mean, John in, in Revelation chapter 1. You see it with Joshua. In Joshua, I believe it's number chapter 5. And you see, they just fall on their face before the Lord. Because they've been in the presence of God. And it is awesome. The angel of the Lord, verse 21, appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die. Why? For we have seen God. In that moment, they realized this was a theophany. An appearing of God. But not only that, it was a Christophany. An appearing of the Son, Jesus Christ. And the reason they thought they were going to die is because no one sees God and lives. That's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 23, but his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, I mean, this woman's got a lot of wisdom. If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things uh, or now announced to us such things as these. When you encounter the presence of the Lord, your response always should be worship. Worship. All right. The Lord loves our worship when it's a devotion from the heart. Finally, the last thing we see is God's spirit empowers you to accomplish his will. God's spirit empowers you to accomplish his will. Look at verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. That's it. That's the birth. Part of one verse. In fact, what's interesting is it says, and the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. A child is born. Grace towards a barren woman. Pure grace. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manahan Dan, Dan between Zora and Esteol. That is a tough word to pronounce. The woman bore a son and called his name Samson. It's an amazing thing. Similar to the story of Jesus 1,100 years later. And we see here that Samson is empowered by the Spirit and he will begin to save Israel. But we know that Samson is just a man and thus he's an imperfect Savior. He leaves us desiring a real Savior, a Savior once and for all. Not one who would save us from the bondage of Philistines, but from the bondage of sin and death. This Savior points us to a greater Samson, one whom the Spirit of God would fall on. The fact is, 
It is the Holy Spirit who empowers us once we have received Jesus as Lord and Savior. When Jesus died on the cross and was raised on the third day, when we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus as our only hope for eternal salvation, the Bible tells us we are sealed until the day of redemption. We're sealed with with the promised Holy Spirit. We have all the power we need to accomplish his will. We are not saved by our good works, but we are saved unto good works. And we now have the Spirit in us, and we can now live a life that brings honor and glory to him. Jesus coming into this world is an act of amazing grace because he knows what you need. He knows grace. He hears your prayers. He desires your worship. And he'll empower you by your spirit. As our worship team comes up, let's just be reminded that it is often in deep darkness that God's light shines brightest. So it is in those times that we must get on our face before the Lord. Not continue going in the same direction we've been going, but just stop and say, God, I need your help. I need your grace. Father, I thank you for our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you know what we needed. And you provided grace through your Son. We know that we are saved by grace through faith and not ourselves. It is a gift of God. So, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Jesus as Lord, I pray today they would turn from their sin and they would call upon the name of Jesus. And we know that your word says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Father, we thank you for your grace. It's an amazing thing. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.